Hello, and welcome to Learning for Life at Gustavus, the podcast about people teaching and learning at Gustavus Adolphus College and the myriad ways that Gustavus liberal arts education provides a lasting foundation for lives of fulfillment and purpose. I'm your host, Greg Castor, faculty member in the Department of History. I first met my guest today, Emily Joan Falk, this past spring semester 2020, when she took the Gustavus History Department's Thinking Historically course required of majors and minors, and which I happen to be teaching. A junior at Gustavus, Emily is majoring in political science, Spanish, and Latin American, Latinx, and Caribbean studies, or LALAX, and minoring, I'm happy to say, in history. In addition to her academic work, Emily, like many Gustavus students, is involved in various co-curricular campus activities, including Building Bridges, the annual student-led social justice conference, and Students for Reproductive Freedom, of which she is co-president. She is active as well in Indivisible Minnesota and National Period Day, and has testified at the Minnesota State House on behalf of the Minnesota Private College Council. Her concern for issues of justice is reflected, too, in her position as racial and disability justice intern with the ARC Minnesota organization, a position she has held since August 2020. In short, Emily is a fully engaged student in and out of the classroom, on and off campus, and her activism is accompanied by serious thinking about the issues that engage her. In the short time I've known her, I've been impressed with the way she combines the Gustavus values of excellence, community, justice, and service, and I'm delighted to speak with her for the podcast. Welcome, Emily. Hi, thank you for having me. My pleasure. Yeah, it's great to reconnect. We haven't talked since the last day of class this past uh, semester. Um, so you, you, you passed. You passed. So no worries. Um, well, that's good to know that I passed. Yeah, yeah, you're good. Um, no, you did great work. It was fun to fun to get to know you. Um, so you're at home right now. Tell us a little bit where, where home is, first of all. Yeah, so I'm from Foley, Minnesota. Um, it's a super small town, about 20 minutes outside of St. Cloud. So right in the middle of the state. And we live kind of in a subset. So Foley is a very small town, but it's really spread out, which is interesting. So there's like little townships within it. So we live in the township of DeWelm within Foley. Okay. Is Foley, um, I mean, in terms of number of people, is it smaller than St. Peter? Oh, yeah. St. Peter is like five times, five or six times the size of Foley. Okay. So Foley's about maybe a couple thousand people or something like that, sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, good. And um, you're not taking a January term course, but you were telling me before we started recording uh, about your morning at the um, hospital where you uh, work. Tell us a little bit about that work and, you know, what, what, what's been going on <laughs> since we're in the middle of this god awful uh, pandemic. Yeah, for sure. So I work at the St. Cloud Hospital. And like I told you before we started recording, I just walk around and count stuff all day. Um, for the laundry department. So it's like keeping different units of the hospital stocked. And honestly, it's just at f- when COVID first started, I remember the first couple weekends I went back home to work. It was like an absolute ghost town in the hospital. Like no one, there were no patients, not a whole lot of staff in the hospital at all, just because they were trying to get everyone out and we're switching a bunch of units into COVID units and So there was a lot of rapid change and then numbers in central Minnesota just kept spiking. And so there ended up being just a ton of COVID cases for the longest time. And we had, gosh, I want to say like 90% of the hospital was filled, not with COVID patients, but, you know, everything on top of that, 
there were so many staff in like a labor pool because their units were closed and they were unable to work. It's, it's, it's been really interesting to see how everyone's like adapted to the change and how we've had to change like the way that we work and the way that we interact with people on a day-to-day basis, because usually it's like, you can, you know, my badge has access to everywhere because we go, you know, to all parts of the hospital, but now it's like, they have these big signs up, like no through traffic, no visitors, you know, all these different things. And it's, it's hard not to be as social, you know, cause the yes. hospital can be like such a tense environment sometimes. So, you know, especially visitors, like they just want to see someone smile at them and tell them to have a nice day. And you can't really do that with a mask on. You can't really do that, you know, when you're in a COVID unit and you see people with like these huge, like, I honestly want to say it's like a space suit. Some folks like in the really critical areas are wearing like PPE that looks like a space suit and all these different things. And it's, it's been hard sometimes, like, you know, some days are just really stressful, but lately because of the holidays, they usually try and discharge as many patients as possible around the holidays. So we've actually been going home early a couple days over the last few weeks, just because no one's in the hospital. And it's, it's weird to see it go from a ghost town, like totally abandoned in some areas to now today, this morning I saw like, it just seemed packed again. Yeah, it's um, boy, all that is so interesting. Um, you also were mentioning before we started recording. I'll come back to what you said in a second, but that you received uh, the first dose, right, of your mm-hmm. of the vaccine, which is which is great. I'm delighted to hear that. But I think what you're saying. Um, there's going to be so much written, obviously, by by scholars, not just historians, about the impact of all this on our public health system. But, you know, there's the issue of morale, of course. Um, but what you're also mentioning about kind of the the social aspects of, of mm-hmm. you know, of healthcare, And, yeah, I mean, having been in a hospital both as a patient and as you know, many times as a visitor, you're right about that. You'd like to be able to interact with not just the person you're coming to see, the loved one or friend, but, you know, the, you know, a smile from the staff or maybe a handshake with the, with the doctor or nurse and all those little things, right? We, we, we can't do at the moment. Um, and yeah, I think that would, that would be hard. How long have you been doing this, by the way? So I started right after I graduated high school. Um, the first day I worked was like two days after I graduated. Wow. So you really have seen a lot, um, Mm -hmm. of changes then, um, this isn't an assignment, but maybe you keep, are you keeping a journal at all? Or maybe you should do a little writing, you know, actually what you could do is write an op-ed maybe, uh, even for the local newspaper about some of your experiences, because uh, it's important to record this stuff. It really is. Mm-hmm. But you're in the front line, so take good care and you're doing uh, obviously important work. The um, town of Foley, I've never been to. I can picture it on the map now that you located it for me. Why Gustavus from there? What brought you to Gustavus? Were there were there family members who had gone? Um, that's often the case. Not always, but you know, why, why Gustavus? Yeah. So it actually is the case for me that, um, one of my family members, my uncle John went to Gustavus. He was a goalie for the hockey team. Oh yeah. So my family has always just been my mom's side, especially has been a big hockey family, big, big, big fans of hockey forever. And he was a Mayak champ, um, in 1984 at Gustavus. And, you know, they would always like talk about it and going to hockey games at Gustavus. And I was touring other Mayak schools at the time. So I remember 
like right before touring Gustavus, I went to Hamlin and St. Thomas and I was, it was actually my second visit at Hamlin and I was almost going to go until I went and toured for the first time. And I was like, Oh, I actually really like it here. I just, it was immediately like, I just kind of felt like I was at home and I wasn't expecting it like to like it as much. You know, I was kind of under the impression, Oh, I'm from a small town. Of course I'm going to go to school in the cities. Like that makes sense. Cause that just seemed to be the natural progression for a lot of my friends in high school. But I just didn't feel at home at any of the other schools I was touring. It just seemed too overwhelming, I guess. Granted they were small schools, but it was still like, yeah, so you live here as a freshman and then you move off campus. And then if you want to, you can graduate in three years with the paralegal certificate and all these different things. And I was like, Oh my gosh. Whereas Mm -hmm. when I went to Gustavus, it was like, yeah, we're, no, you can stay here all four years. And it's, to me, St. Peter is not a small town um, just by comparison to where I'm from, but it felt small enough that I could call it home, but big enough where I was still able to like explore different things that I hadn't experienced before. Right. And like, yeah. And you know, sure. And you know, there's nearby Mankato, which is really big <laughs> compared mm-hmm. to, to Foley and even St. Peter. And of course the twin cities aren't that far. Yeah. It's so funny. It's a, it's a big theme in the podcast. I mean, I, you know, wasn't expecting it. Um, but that, that what you just said, I mean, the number of people who have said they came to Gustavus because of the campus visit and mm-hmm. you're, weren't you, you, are you a gusty greeter also or not? Yeah. Are you were? Yeah, so you know this firsthand from the other side too. I mean, how how important that visit can be, and and to a person, everyone has commented on that about feeling uh, that feeling of comfort um, and feeling you know feeling like this is a place where I can where I can thrive. So it's good to hear you say that uh, uh, as well. What um uh, what what brought you to poli sci? I mean, you know, I teach you about these three, your triple major and why not a fourth history, but um, I couldn't resist. But, but what, 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 I mean, how did you come to have three majors? I mean, is there a lo- any kind of logic to it? I can kind of see obviously Spanish and Lalax, Latin American, uh, Latinx Caribbean studies, but tell us a little bit about, you, you know, that path uh, to those majors. Yeah, for sure. So I usually joke that I'm bad at saying no, and that's how I ended up being a triple major. Um, But for me, so when I first came like into college, I already knew I was going to major in political science. Like that's never changed. Um, But I originally wanted to double major in psychology and political science. And so I was taking psych classes and poli sci classes, and I was going to minor, excuse me, in um, Spanish but I was just like, I just, as much as I'm interested in psychology, especially forensic psychology, yeah. I just, I just have a language brain. Like I love learning Spanish and having conversations in a different language because it's just opened so many doors for me, like to be able to communicate with more people, to be able to form relationships with more people. And like, politics. I'm super interested in radical politics. Um, and Latin America is absolutely the home of radical politics. I just find it so interesting, like whether it be, you know, the Zapatista movement in Mexico or like the communist revolution in Cuba, like Mm -hmm. to me, it's so interesting how 
the left has developed in Latin America in comparison to the United States. And even like coming into Gustavus, like the first poli sci class I took was political and legal thinking with Joe Locke. Who oh, was yeah. amazing. And just reading so much different political theory from different theorists and different political scientists was really eye-opening because although I would consider myself like a left-leaning person and like very politically aware, I just realized I was missing out on so much that is out there. Yeah, that's, um, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, just being able to absorb it all just kind of made sense for me to pick those three because I feel like they're so connected and just like who I am and what I do and just like how I interact with like academia and academics. Yes. And you've spelled out nicely. Um, I wasn't sure about how poli sci connected to the other two, but you've, you've made that clear. And as I, as I indicated in my intro, one thing I am impressed with about you is, is, is your, um, ability to combine not just activism, that's sometimes easy, but the, but the thought as well. And I think, um, Jill, Professor Locke's uh, course on political, well, she's a political theorist, right? But that course, um, no, no doubt has helped you with that. Um, the other, the other thing I think that's interesting um, about you is that you were already interested in political science, if I'm hearing you correctly, before mm-hmm. you came to Gustavus. Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, was that something you were already studying in high school or? Yeah, so I'd taken um, a political science course at my high school. We did college in the schools through St. Cloud State. And so my favorite teacher in high school, her name's Miss Croshall. I don't know if she listens to this podcast, but if she does, I hope she so. her. Um, because she went to Gustavus as well. Oh. And it was really interesting because she wouldn't talk about going to Gustavus a lot, but she definitely encouraged me to visit and I loved her course. She is so was so influential on me. She's really interested in theology as well. So I took Western Civ with her and political science um, at the same time. And just, I guess, seeing how everything worked with the things I was already interested in. Like, I've always been interested in social justice, but I never really had any route or any way to, like, express that interest being from a small town. Yes. Um, and so... Go ahead. Just taking that course uh, to me was just, it, I don't know, it just made me, gave me insight that there were other people like me that were interested in the same things and that it would, like you could make a career out of it. You know, it was more than just being, you know, some social justice warrior out in the streets. Like there was a lot of Yeah, exactly. That's so important. I mean, and that's where, um, boy, teaching is, is phenomenal when teachers, um, you know, inspire students, or as others have said on the podcast, exactly what you just said. You you become aware that you mean I can you can I can do this for a living, or I can I can make a career out of this, um, uh, a vocation uh, if you like. But yeah, that's cool. And I I'm boy I'm jotting her name down, and maybe we'll interview um, your your teacher as well for the podcast. So were there? I mean, was social justice something? It doesn't sound like it, but was something anyone in your family was doing? Any kind of activism we're talking about, or I guess it was always a conversation, but not explicitly within my family. Um, But I think my dad's always just been like a huge inspiration for me. Both my parents really, because they're just, they've always really instilled in me 
the importance of kindness and treating everyone with dignity and respect and treating everyone equally. And my dad, you know, always told us growing up, you and you alone are responsible for your actions and you and you alone are responsible for the consequences of those actions, which has been like, I'm sure you can tell absolutely ingrained into my mind. And it's something I live by. And so growing up, just like seeing the news and things of like people not being accountable for the things that they did and seeing that, you know, injustice and inequality was existing when that's not what I was experiencing at home. And I was, you know, it's like when you're being told that everyone should be kind and everyone's going to be treated equally and then you leave the house and it's like, wait, what's going on? It kind of just wakes something up within you that, you know, if you can do something, if you can make a change in any way, shape or form, you should do it. And it just called me, I guess, to be on the path that I'm on now. Yeah. And that gap between um, what you're really talking about is the gap between sort of ideals or values and reality that often fuels that often fuels activism, especially young people's activism. That was certainly true in the in the 1960s. And um, and it's still true. Uh, and you're, you're another example of that. Now, did you I'm trying to remember, did you tell me your dad your, was it your dad who was a policeman was or is or is that a different yeah, family? He, he was and, and is still or not? He is still. Yep. And, and is that for on the local police force or? Um, yeah, he is a police officer. Well, he's a detective, um, in the next town over. So. Wow. That's interesting. So what was it like to grow up with a dad who's a police, a policeman? Yeah, it's honestly been really interesting. Um, like when I reflect back on it, right. Like a lot of the things I do now, like related to, um, racial justice and like activism and black lives matter is I feel like was really influenced by him and just the way he lives his life. Like he's the kindest and most genuine person I know and truly treats everyone with respect no matter what. And to see the way that he performs his job and knowing that that is not the case, that's not how everyone does their job, you know, I still right. remember where I was standing when I found out that Michael Brown, um, was murdered in Ferguson. And I was like, this cannot be real. Like this can't happen. Police brutality was a thing in the sixties. Like up until I was 14, I thought racism and racial injustice was completely a thing of the past. Mm. Um, cause I didn't see it like fully so small. It's 90 some percent white. Like I did not see racism, police brutality or anything like that occurring in my community because everyone around me looked the same. And so to realize that it was happening in other places, I was just like, whoa, 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 like something is wrong with that. And I felt like a lot of internal conflict. I'm like, wait, my dad's a good person and he's a police officer, but these people who are police officers are bad people. And just with a lot of, you know, rhetoric now about like defunding the police or abolishing it and kind of, being able to understand that perspective, um, specifically like from a defunding the police perspective, just, it's just given me a lot of valuable insight to that as well of like what policing is and like how it should be done and how it's really serving and protecting the community, but that's not what we're seeing happening. And what can we do to, you know, make sure that everyone in our community is safe and turn it into more of a situation of mutual aid and support instead of like reprimanding members of the community, if that makes sense. 
Oh, it all makes sense. And that's, um, I mean, that's, I mean, that's, first of all, that's incredible to be around, you know, 14 years old that your one is dealing with all kinds of issues already at that age, but then to, um, kind of think about what you're seeing on television, reading about with, um, you know, Michael Brown and, and others, and then your, your own dad is a, is a policeman. Yeah. That, that's all important and formative. I, I think as you're suggesting, the other, um, did your did your dad talk much about that with you? Did you have conversations with him about, or, or let's say, um, Mr. George Floyd's death here in Minneapolis, or no? Or is it, is it a subject you kind of both stay away from? I mean, at first, I feel like I was, um, I guess, kind of an angsty teenager at the time because I was really mad. Um, I guess. And I just was like absorbing all the information I was getting so quickly. And so I didn't know what to do. And so honestly, it was a little bit of an argument for a while because I didn't understand, I think, fully what I was talking about or the significance of it on a larger scale within the United States. And, you know, as I've gotten older, I've understood, I understand like how to have conversation, not just like with my dad, but with anyone that isn't so confrontational and coming out. I am right. I read two articles and I am a genius now (laughs) and I am going to get up on a soapbox and scream at whoever, you know, like it's, it's not like that. And it was for a while. And I remember when George Floyd was murdered and just having a conversation with my dad about that and talking about how the officers that did that, like they shouldn't have a job. There's, he told me, he was like, there's some people that shouldn't be police officers. You know, Minneapolis, the MPD has had a lot of problems that haven't been addressed. And that is deeply problematic. And there needs to be something done about it because it just, the civil unrest is not like new, you know, right. it's been building up for a long time. It's just more people know about it because they can see it on their TVs and they can hear about it. But he's known about some of these issues for quite a while. And he's like, I'm not, you know, surprised that this happened because they still had that chokehold within, you know, their code of conduct. They never took it out, even though within the state of Minnesota, you're not supposed to do that. They totally outlawed it. Yeah. All that again is, is so, is so interesting. You're absolutely right about, uh, you know, Minnesota and the Twin Cities, I mean, the, the the segregation and racism, you know, it's hard to say as someone who I'm not from Minnesota, but certainly have grown to to love it um, after living here 30, more than 30 years. But it's, you know, it's, yeah, there's a long history here, as you you are saying. And actually an alum, uh, William Green, who's uh, went to Gustavus, uh, graduated, you know, some, some years ago, but teaches at Augsburg and has written four books now on black history in Minnesota. He's, you know, gets it, gets at some of the roots of this. Um, you know, some of what you're describing, as you suggest, is just sort of being a teenager and I'm, I'm, I'm having... Um, uh, semi-traumatic memories of arguing with my dad over many, many things <laughs> and feeling bad for my mom who witnessed these arguments with my dad, my only sibling, my younger brother and me. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, in all seriousness, I mean, it's kind of, it gives you a vantage point, right, on on some of the issues uh, surrounding, you know, the murder of George Floyd and, and, and similar events. A vantage point with your dad as a policeman that, that not all of us have I also want to comment on your dad's maybe your mom's who that comment uh, they made or he made about kindness i 
Wow. I don't know if I'm remembering this correctly, but I remember reading, I think it was the author Kurt Vonnegut saying something like just how important, you know, acts of kindness are in this world. Um, and it's easy to dismiss that as some sort of, you know, softy, you know, inconsequential attitude or, or sentiment, but, but it really is. I think you, you're lucky. You had good advice. It seems to me from your, from your parents. What about your mom? Was she working too, or is she working while you were growing up? Yeah, she works. Um, we actually work at the hospital together. So oh. she works as an administrative assistant in the safety and security office. So everyone calls her the badge lady because um, she makes all the hospital IDs and things. So yeah. she <laughs> is like the first face you see when you go through employee orientation. You get to go downstairs and like get your picture taken. And then there's my mom telling you to smile. <laughs> That's neat. So do you, do you have much interaction with her when you're at the hospital? I'm gathering probably not. I mean, yeah, she works right down the hallway from me, actually. So during my breaks, this is going to sound so childish because we have lunch together, like most days that I work, but she'll like pack me a snack or something in her lunchbox. And so I sneak down there um, during my morning breaks and I just kind of like hang out in her office and I grab Hmm. an apple or something. And it's, it's really nice. It's, it's just, I love my mom. We're really close. And so it's nice to be able to be able to see her throughout the workday and be able, we can just vent to each other if we need to a little bit. Yeah, no, I think that it's not childish. It's, it's, it's nice and, and sounds sweet to me. Um, back to the majors. So poli sci, I get, and, um, what about Spanish? I mean, what were you already studying that in, in high school as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I took Spanish for three years in high school and, I wasn't sure if I wanted to continue studying Spanish in college. Um, I knew I wanted to do like a minor, but I just had no ideas until during my senior year of high school, I went to Spain for two weeks and I really- Oh, I'm envious. Oh, I'm envious. I'm so so envious. (laughs) Keep going. Sorry. (laughs) No, I mean, it it was a really great experience. I don't think I would trade it for anything in the world, like hearing- people like especially hanging out with my host sister who was the same age as me and her friends like wow just really opened my eyes to how important language is right and it just kind of sparked I guess a passion within me to keep learning it because I can talk to more people you know and just it was great it was really what part of what part of Spain were you in I was in um the region of Andalusia so the southern part of Spain Um, so I was in a town during my family stay called Puerto Real, which is about 20 minutes outside of Cadiz. So it was right on the Southern coast of Spain. It was absolutely beautiful. I am so envious. Spain is, I've never been, uh, I may have mentioned to our class. I, I went to Mexico, I think it was a junior and just fell in love. I went with my then girlfriend, uh, who was fluent in Spanish and I had not taken Spanish in high school, but we went, um, I was taking it in college and we went and I just central Mexico, just absolutely love for a semester. And, you know, it was, you know, as they say, transformative, life changing in so many important ways, but I've always wanted to go to Spain. Um, I'm not sure I've told anyone else about this before, but I went through kind of a bullfighting phase, not as a bullfighter, but I was, I was so into, you know, I don't know, maybe it was my younger Hemingway. I just was so into reading about bullfighting and bullfighters and watching even, I remember going with my parents and brother somewhere in Chicago, maybe in the Chicago amphitheater where, uh, 
a bullfighter uh, named El Cordobes, I think was, um, was that his name? I think so. A younger guy was, you know, you could watch the bullfight on this big screen and eat Spanish food. And <laughs> I was in heaven. <laughs> um, so um, I, I outgrew the bullfighting part, but not the desire to go to Spain. So I am envious. That's awesome. And that's what about it? Well, your time at Gustavus, if you had a chance to go abroad again or not? Not yet. No, I was supposed to go to Argentina this spring. Um, oh. semester, but unfortunately, you know, Miss Coronavirus decided to cancel those plans. Yeah. But hopefully, I haven't decided yet if I'm going to go during the fall semester or if I'm going to go over J term. But I would really love to spend some time in Argentina. Oh, me too. Again, not been there. I hope you get to go. Um, I've done sooner some podcasting with faculty in that in the in the Spanish section of the modern languages, literatures and cultures department. So I don't know. Are you are you taking um, if you're taking courses with a particular professor? I've done uh, with um, uh, you know Professor Mejia Suarez mm -hmm. and uh, uh, Professor Dwyer, Angelique Dwyer, all. All interesting people. The um, I wish I had kept out my Spanish. I have not. I'm embarrassed to say, uh, but I but I wish I had. But my brother-in-law is um, uh, a doctor in Phoenix, and he and his wife, my my wife's sister, they came here to Minneapolis, and we went out to dinner at a local restaurant. <laughs> there was a guy um, from we know who actually works in our building also, but he worked at this restaurant, and is from Ecuador. And suddenly, my brother-in-law is speaking like fluent Spanish with this guy. And I'm stunned. I had no idea. Like, what? where is this coming from? Um, and it turned out, right, that he's had to learn Spanish and he's learned it in part just by interacting with all of his patients in, in the Phoenix area. And so, you know, to your point about being able to communicate with people, I mean, there's the kind of, you know, language is a bridge between cultures, but also sometimes just very practical uh, applications of it. And um, there it was. So Spanish, poli-sci, Latin American, Latinx, Caribbean studies, it all makes sense. Now, the wild card question, history. <laughs> why, why the minor in history? What drew you to history? Oh, I've just always loved history. Honestly, I just, it's always interested me. My favorite movies growing up were Indiana Jones, um, and I was convinced I was going to be him when I grew up. <laughs> I even had a hat that my mom got from New Zealand, but I was like, no, this is my Indiana Jones hat. And I wouldn't take it off. I was, <laughs> I'm going to go be an archaeologist. I really think, I realized archaeology isn't like that. What I really wanted to do is just travel around in the forties and like punch Nazis, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just... Oh, I just love history. And I watched this cartoon too called the Time Warp Trio. And the, I don't know that. Oh. King Tut, just like different things that in my childhood, I think that just influenced my love of history and just an interest in it. But then, you know, as I've grown older, like history is a part, I think of every academic discipline, right? Like it, it all has a history, you know, yes. it doesn't start and end with what you study which I find so fascinating because all of that has directly impacted where you are right now doing work. Yeah, exactly. Like in general, like us as human beings. Right. Now you're preaching to the choir, as you know. Yeah. yeah. You know, also it occurs to me, I mean, there's so many students who've mentioned um, when I've talked to them, not just for the podcast, but about 
you know, where their interest in history come, came from. It's it, no surprise. I mean, we historians know this popular culture, but I'd like to know more about that. I mean, some, for example, what you just mentioned, um, what was it? What's it called? The, the, the cartoon you mentioned? I had not heard of that before. Trio. Yeah. Yeah. I'd not heard of that. Um, Drunken history. I heard of and watch actually, I think it's no longer being made, but you know, film, all that stuff is so interesting. Uh, and I think important for, for teachers of history to know about and think about. Um, well, you know, there's still time to major in history, so we'll see. You may not, well, not if you want to graduate in four years. Minor, we'll accept the minor. That's great. So um, you've been not only doing, you know, really excellent work uh, academically, but you've been really quite involved in, in, in the various activities um, that I mentioned at the start. And let, let's talk a little bit about those. Um, I actually did not know much about uh, the organization of which you are co-president, Students for Reproductive Freedom. I'd heard of it, but I hadn't known as much about it until uh, preparing for this podcast. Tell us a little bit about that, your involvement in that, what the purpose of the organization is, and what drew you to it. Yeah, for sure. So the organization actually started the spring of my first year at Gustavus. Um, and so at first it was just like, Oh, my friend Nora Hagestein invited me and she's like, you would love this. One of my friends that I work with in the career development office has started this organization through Planned Parenthood. You have to come to our meetings. So it was like me and six other students and we were just starting the org and we're like, this is, this is important and we should be doing this on campus and we just want to be able to have fun while we do it. And we started tabling and doing different things to pick it up off the ground. And then at the end of the year, I applied, um, to be vice president of the organization. And they actually stopped me one day and they're like, oh, um, actually, so do you just want to be president next year? Do you <laughs> want to take it over? And I was like, um, okay, yeah, I guess I can do that. Uh-huh. And I was just so shocked. But so that involves like an internship with Planned Parenthood Generation Action as well. So that's been really great is to not just like be in an organization that is just like encompasses everything that I'm passionate about, um, in relation to reproductive rights and, um, healthcare and women's rights. It's just like, I actually get to learn about it and do different trainings and things that make me, I feel like more knowledgeable, but also I think just better, better able to serve the group and we are currently working on getting free menstrual products in all the campus center bathrooms through a company called Aunt Flow. So last year we were able to charge the Health and Housing Committee on Student Senate with that. And so hopefully, fingers crossed, um, we will be able to get them in there by the end of the year. But that's been something I think that's been one of the main focuses of our group is destigmatizing. Um, the like just getting a period in general right right and the importance of menstrual products not just as like they're not luxuries right it's a necessity we have condoms sure. everywhere why can't we have tampons you know yeah and that first congratulations on that i didn't know that that's 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 awesome and obviously this relates to um your, your work with national period day you want to say a little bit about that mm -hmm. yeah that was so much fun that was, again, I feel like working with Planned Parenthood or just any nonprofit, um, I would really recommend for people interested in social justice or any kind of activism because 
everyone knows each other really. And it opened so many doors. And that's what happened was my supervisor at Planned Parenthood was like, Oh, I know you've mentioned that your group is doing this. So here's the person that's doing this national period day rally at the U of M. Do you want to like co-sponsor it and go speak? And I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And Yeah. So I was able to talk about, um, I guess menstrual inequality, like at Gustavus and within other like private colleges, because the university of Minnesota actually has, um, free menstrual products within, I guess the equivalent of the Jackson campus center. Um, which is really impressive because they have a huge student body. And so I was talking about like why this is important. And I was able to speak like from my experiences doing that work at Gustavus and being able to be there with not only other like-minded, like just individuals, but organizations as well. Like there were so many people there. Um, Aaron Mayquade, if you know who that is, kind of, kind of a local celebrity. Um, I think she worked in the house of representatives for a while, does a lot of political work, um, is an absolute icon. And she and her wife, I have met several times now, um, just doing stuff like, not just within like political activism and action, but just like on social media as well. They do so many different like Zoom things and oh, it was just so cool. So she hosted that. There was, um, oh, I forget the name of it, but they work with um, women who have endometriosis and making mm-hmm. care more accessible for them. Um there is this organization for queer folks called the Coven, which is local to Minneapolis. That was there as well. And it was just, it was really wonderful. And I feel like making those connections with folks like within the community and different organizations is so important because it just, it makes you more able um, to effectively serve the people around you. If you can connect them to the resources that they need and to also be able to learn, like I had no idea what any of these other places were, you know, I didn't even right. know were a thing. Like I'm not from Minneapolis. Anyone describes something there and I'm like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> so being able to see it and learn about it just makes me more able to, I guess, create like pathways for people where they need Yeah, them. absolutely. And, um, you know, I used to teach and you're making me want to revive it. Actually, I used to teach a course called American Radicalism or American Descent, and maybe I will revive it. Um, but that is a huge part of what, what you're describing of, of activism, um, whether it's on the left, the right, it doesn't matter, but that, you know, the kind of the social aspects of it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I didn't, participate in lots of demonstrations as a, as a younger person and some, some sense, but, you know, part of it is just being with other people, as you're suggesting that both, both connect, making connections that can be useful to you as an activist, but, um, and the people you're trying to help or the causes you're working with, but also just the fun of -hmm. being around other people and feeling that energy and excitement. Um, no small thing. I would imagine, um, this is, built your confidence as well, I would think, as a speaker, or is that true? Do you feel that? Yeah, I think it was, well, I was still very nervous um, to go up and speak in front of that many people, but I was in speech in high school, and I actually was in the category original oratory, which is like an original persuasive speech, so I have absolutely no problem telling people exactly what I think, (laughs) Um, so I feel like that's just grown, which has been really useful. Um, Because public speaking and I guess just presenting or 
doing things like that in general can be really nerve wracking for some folks. And it doesn't mean I don't get nervous, but right. I'm really confident in my ability to speak and or to convey an idea effectively. Yeah. And, um, and don't ever lose that, that, um, <laughs> that willingness to tell, tell people what you think, hang on to that. Uh, I still get nervous. Um, I mean, I've been teaching for, I mean, just at Gustavus more than 30 years and I'm always a little bit nervous before, uh, uh, go, you know, whether it's online or in person, it doesn't matter. And I, I always tell myself if I don't feel that I'll probably stop teaching. Um, doesn't mean, you know, as you're suggesting, it doesn't mean you don't develop confidence, but I think that's true of actors too. Sometimes, mm -hmm. uh, at least for some, um, the other thing I want to talk to you about. So, you know, you mentioned, I mean, I forget the phrase you use, but it's important. I mean, people, I can imagine some people making really funny on you know, national period day, but you know, you, you, you make a serious point and that's a, one of the points of the day, which is there is this kind of, um, you know, issue of of equality right it's an economic issue i mean these products are not as you said they're not luxury items and they cost money and so you know why is it that um institutions if they're providing let's say condoms which wasn't always the case at gustavus i'm old enough to remember when that was not the case at gustavus i remember a biology professor who left i think after a year because he just wanted to do something else, but dumping a box of condoms on the table in his classroom. <laughs> um, anyway, um, you know, just say a bit, am I, am I right about that? That's the issue, right? I mean, these things cost money and not everyone, not all students can afford them. And the other issue maybe is that this isn't just a, um, what's the phrase, feminine product. Do you want to say a little bit about that? That's what's, what, as they're often described that way, right? Feminine products. Go ahead. Yeah, totally. I think it's an issue um, well, you know, not to be like, oh, everything's so interconnected, but it really is. And I think that, um, equality related to menstruation is related, I think, directly to economics. Um, just in the sense that like so many food shelves, um, and homeless shelters and organizations that are similar, the one thing that they always want is menstrual products because they don't get them because people don't think about, you know, someone who menstruates, who's homeless, who like does not have access to that and is now like in the streets with, doesn't know what to do. Um, and they're just expensive. Like going to target, we had an event last fall called a sexy, sustainable bingo, where we gave out, um, Great title. and also like we played bingo and what we did was our prizes were environmentally friendly menstrual products. And when I went to Target to buy them, seeing how expensive they all were was, wow, I already knew it was an issue, but I was like, oh my gosh, this is ridiculous. Because in some states, thankfully not Minnesota, but they're taxed as luxury items and wow. they're not a luxury. And I think for all women's products, there's a pink tax where the price is just higher. And sometimes that they're taxed as luxury items. Whereas if they are marketed towards men or, um, those who I guess like are more masculine, right? Like the price is significantly less and they are not taxed because they're seen as a necessity. So it's the issue then of gender equality, but then it's also the issue within, you know, what if you are, a transgender man who is still getting their period. Right. right. And then, but the assumption is that all folks who menstruate are women, but it's more than a women's issue. You know, it is, how do we 
destigmatize it so that everyone understands like you don't have to be a woman to have your period and it's not gross and it's not something that you can't talk about or like have in the open. And these are really products we should have in all bathrooms because you don't know who's using what, right? And it's a kind right. of I think a bold assumption and you know, obviously transphobic and exclusive to just assume that, you know, do there's some men that get their periods, you know, and that, that happens. There's non-binary folks who, you know, might feel more comfortable using one bathroom over the other, but then, you know, think of how awkward that is to then dig in a bag or your pockets for like quarters to like try and buy a tampon and it says feminine products on it, but you don't identify with that. Right. No, those are, those are all excellent points, I think. And, um, points that I, frankly, I hadn't thought a whole lot about until I, um, read about even before, I think you maybe before, yeah, before, cause I think this was last fall, right? The national period day, if mm-hmm. I remember. Yeah. Before, so before I knew you, um, but you know, I'd never, I'd never really paid that much attention to the economic side of it and, and also the, the, um, you know, the implications of calling these products feminine, products. Um, so again, kudos on, on getting that done at Gustavus. It almost done. It sounds like that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a concrete, uh, achievement that you and your, your, um, uh, fellow activists can, can take great pride in. The other, um, thing I'd like to talk a little bit about is your work with indivisible, um, which is, you know, man, that's, that's become really an important organization nationally. I think, uh, important nationally and, um, locally at the state level as well. I know some people involved in here in Minnesota and now you too. Tell us a little bit about that, how you came to be involved in it and what, what it's about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So last J term, actually, I was in a course with Misty Harper um, and it was a Native American history of the U.S. And she at the time was also involved with Indivisible and just going to the local rallies that they would hold. And a couple of my friends would actually go to their weekly rallies and demonstrations as well. And I don't know how I totally had never heard of it, but I started going when, you know, the government was like, "Mm, yeah, we're just going to hang out in Iran for a little bit. Um, and just, you know, everyone was really scared and I was like, Oh, this is not okay. And so I went to the rallies and I just kept going and I was reached out to by a member of the, leadership team. And they're like, do you want to be on the leadership team? Like, do you want to keep doing this? It's like, yeah. Okay. This is a theme in your life, right? Where people ask you, so, um, you know, Hey, do you like to be president of the, <laughs> the student students for reproductive freedom? Or would you like to speak at, you know, this rally? And, and now this, I'm, I'm waiting for someone someday, someone's going to ask you, would you like to run for office? We'll come to that in a bit, but so keep going. Tell us what your responsibilities are for indivisible. Yeah. And so then after that, um, I just started getting more involved, which is great because I think that, you know, being a college student on the leadership team is important because I feel sometimes that Gustavus students have a hard time getting off the hill. Like we're super involved on campus, but sometimes on campus, it can be difficult because we are involved within the campus community and not the greater St. Peter community. And this has been a way for me to encourage not only like myself to put myself out there, but also for other students to do the same thing. Like anytime we had demonstrations or rallies like the count every vote rally 
um, that we had right after the election in Mankato. I mean, I send all the notifications out to students for reproductive freedom so that everyone knows what's going on and that there's other ways to be involved and to have your voice heard. And so one of my responsibilities has been, um, sometimes I've organized rallies or demonstrations. I've spoken at some of them, but we have weekly meetings and we plan our solidarity Saturdays or Sundays and just ways that we can serve the community and like where we're needed. You know, like what is occurring locally, nationally, at whatever level, politically that we need to speak out about, you know, like, and it changes every day, you know, which is crazy to think about, but it's really just about building community with folks who are like-minded and not only that, but making a seat at the table and inviting more people into the movement and ensuring that everyone has a place and that we're voting and that we are holding politicians accountable so that it really can be like a representative democracy. Yeah. I mean, I, I not, not directly involved in any way, sort of supportive from the margins. And again, I don't know, um, uh, some people involved in it, but I'm super impressed with the, um, the mission of the organization, its attempt to be inclusive, and also um, the fact that it, you know, it, it, you know, for a time I wasn't sure is this going to be sort of a one-off, right? Mm-hmm. You know, but it's not. I mean, it looks like it's it, it's really going to be sustained. You mentioned Professor Harper, my colleague in the history department, and I was able to podcast with her about the George Floyd uh, murder and uh, the history around it. And then also, I don't know if you came across Professor Yuri Hong of Classics, who's been involved in, um, in Indivisible and other uh, actions as well in, in the mm-hmm. area. And I, I think, too, the point you just made about um, getting off the hill. I mean, it is, you know, there is one of the things I do like about you, too, by the way, your, your activism is not just the thinking that goes with it, but that it isn't confined simply to campus co-curricular stuff. We'll talk about building bridges in a second. But, um, you know, that you're getting off the hill uh, and into the community. I think that's super important and useful too, in all kinds of ways, both to you individually and to the, you know, to the community and college both. But let's talk about, um, uh, building bridges now, because that is, that's also an amazing effort that's been ongoing. I don't know when it was started, but I, I can't remember when there wasn't a building bridges conference and you've been pretty involved in that word since almost since the start. Is that right? Since you started your time at Gustavus 2018 or something like that. Yeah. Tell, yeah okay. Tell us, tell us a little bit about what, what, what building bridges is and, and what you've been up to in it. Yeah. I just, I love BB, um, building bridges. It's, it's so much fun. Um, and yes, uh, I know Yuri Hong very well. She's the one that asked me to be a member of the leadership team. Oh. <laughs> was one of the first people I met at Gustavus because I went to the religion and classics, I guess, like little presentation that they put on, um, on accepted students day. And she convinced me to come because I just thought she's so cool. It's so cool. Um, but yeah, building bridges is really so much fun. Um, I know you interviewed Joy Dunna for one of the episodes of the podcast. I met her on one of those accepted students day. I was like, what do you do? Like, you're so cool. Like, what are some things (laughs) I could be involved in? Um, and she was like, Oh my gosh, there's building bridges. And I was like, yep right away, I knew I was going to join. And I did. And um, this is the 26th year that we have been doing the conference. 
and my third year within the organization. Um, and it's just really cool. I, I have no other way to describe it. It's really, I think, a testament to, I guess, the students' abilities, but also just to like the leadership within Building Bridges has always been about like building the members' like confidence. Yes. And understanding that, no, we have the ability to run a big social justice conference and get like huge names within the sphere, like David Archambault, um, to come and speak at our school and at this conference because we are like well qualified to put this on. And it's, it's just been really cool. Like it's not just the conference, right? Like obviously that is the end goal, um, that we work towards, but it's also like the learning part of it as well. Like we spend, you know, a good chunk of our meeting learning about our topic and our keynote speakers and discussing the ways in which we as individuals interact with the topic, how we relate to it, what we can do as like a community, um, Akis Davis to just do more than the conference and supporting the cause. Right. It's not just kind of like you mentioned right. one off, like one and done like, Oh yeah. So this year we're doing liberation. I was going to ask you, go ahead. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. And I think, which seems like a broad topic because it is, but there's so many different kinds of liberation. So there's a lot we can do with it. And I'm so excited to see how like folks with an action piece, especially, which is like, they turn the second floor of Beck into almost like an interactive art piece. Um, and every room is just filled with student art and interaction um, for folks to be able to like get out of their seats and interact and learn about the topic in a different way. But they're going to be able to do that online this year. And that's so cool to be able to see like the creativity come out. And I'm on the events committee and being able to do different online events and plan them and brainstorm. And how are we going to promote it? Because like, how do you promote things online? Cause you can use social media. It's so cool just to see the amount of like passion and drive within the planning process. And it's, it's the best. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, all I can say is I'm envious. I'm looking at it as a faculty member and proud. Um, I think, you know, in a way it's its own curriculum. I mean, the learning that goes on, as you say, I mean, the learning that goes on in, it's kind of like the Nobel conference or the May Day conference. I mean, all mm -hmm. the event itself is of course, awesome. And that's the point, but it's all the, all the work and learning that, you know, precedes the event. And then the, you know, the great satisfaction in pulling off such an event and this spring pulling it off, you know, online, which I, which I know all of you will do well. It's funny, the other um, day I was interviewing an alum, graduated in 2014, Katie Schlangen, who was a biohistory double major. She's now in uh, Hong Kong, but um, she was super involved in building bridges as well, like, like Joy Dunn, a history major. And, um, mm -hmm. You know, and again, just saying you know, much of what you're, you're saying about the importance of that, um, that experience at Gustavus. So um, congrats on that. Look forward to, to this year's uh, BB. I hadn't heard that before. <laughs> Building Bridges Conference. So, you know, again, I'm just so impressed with the ways in which all of your different activities 
really intertwine, right, around social justice. And that leads me to your current, your internship work with the ARC. What is, um, I've heard of the ARC, I know a little bit about it, but how long have you been, well, I think I said you've been doing that since, what, August of 2020, so not that long. But tell us a little bit about your, your work there, what draws you to it, and what it involves. Yeah, so... When I first came home last year, once we were sent off campus, I was like, well, what am I going to do over my spring break? And so I was applying for different internships and I actually got the ARCS um, policy research internship, which I did over the summer. Which, That's great. Yeah, it was a really wonderful experience to, I love doing research. And so to be able to do it about like the political implications and nuances um, of the disability rights movement was so fascinating because so often in activist work and in social justice spheres, accessibility and disability rights are often kind of like overlooked. Yes. And there's a lot of ableist language around activism, like stand up, use your voice, you know, like you don't think about the implications of that all the time and how that might be exclusive. And that was just so wonderful. And they offered me the position, um, of a racial justice and disability justice intern, which I actually just finished up not too long ago, but it was, it's just cool, honestly, to be able to be along, to do like something that I'm passionate about with yes. an organization that is already doing so many wonderful things. Right. And yeah. like, how can we make yeah. this work more inclusive? How can we, build the understanding between like the disability community and folks with disability who are also experiencing racial injustice or police brutality because folks with disabilities are more likely to experience police brutality. Like how do we incorporate that into what we're already doing? Right. Because I told them like this, this work already is what we're doing. It's already aligned with our mission statements and with our principles. Like, we just need to do it, you know? Yeah, it's, um, you know, the stuff about disability and the, and the ways race connects with um, disability, I, f I find fi quite fascinating. And um, what you just said is true, I think, about how disability uh, issues get, get, get too often overlooked. Um, it only was a few years ago when I was teaching the first, my first term seminar in the 1960s that a student in that class uh, decided to do her paper on the disabilities movement coming out of the, you know, out of the 60s, mm -hmm. which, you know, is usually, you know, forgotten, all easily forgotten, even by me, right? You, know, you focus on the civil rights movement, women's rights, you know, the, the you know, anti-war movement, et cetera, gay rights. But yeah, so uh, again, kudos to you for, for your involvement there. Um, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you're a walking advertisement for Gustavus education. Um, but let's uh, maybe on, conclude on, conclude on uh, two notes. One, um, what's your, what's your pitch for Gustavus? Why come to Gustavus if you were speaking to a prospective student? And then two, just looking ahead, I know you're only in junior, right? And the, you know, God knows it, but you know, what you, what you see yourself doing maybe in, in, in five years out uh, after graduation. Well, um, my first pitch for Gustavus is there's a lot of vegetarian options in the calf <laughs> more than any of the other Mayak schools. So if, if you're getting down to the nitty gritty, it's the vegetarian food. Um, That's important. And it's good. It's good vegetarian food too, right? Delicious. Vegetarian food. Um, but I guess, 
For me, it's really, it's really about the community for me, um, was why I chose to go to Gustavus. And it's why I continue to go to Gustavus because of the relationships that I have made with faculty members, with other students. Like I've met my best friends in the entire world at Gustavus. I have truly found a place like where I belong. I have become connected with communities that I'm a part of in ways that I never thought would be possible. It's, and on top of that, like the learning, right? I feel like this is a place for lifelong learners. It truly is. Like you come and you know that you're not only, like you're here to get a great education, right? But as you were going along, what I've realized is I'm never going to stop learning. I'm not just here, you know, to get a credit like my science credit or my math credit or like any of the gen eds done, right? Like it's more than that. It's I'm going to continue using this information and the skills that I've gained through every single class for the rest of my life. Um, As for what I plan on doing after graduation, oh my gosh, my sister, it was so fun. She asked me last night, she's like, what are you even going to do after you graduate? And I'm like, hmm, that's a really controversial question, isn't it? Uh, But I think um, what I would like to do is I would just like to work or do research after my undergrad for a couple of years and um, hopefully work with nonprofits some more because I just think that that work is so fascinating and I just really enjoy it. Um, but I would like to go to law school um, to be a civil and human rights lawyer, possibly. Uh, maybe I'll work for the ACLU something like that. Who knows? I might even live in a city like many. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe right. I'll move out of the small town, but I, know, I would really, I just want to be able to do, to do the right thing, like, and have that be my career, you know? You will. I have no, I mean, none of your, we, all of us know you will. I have no doubt about that, um, that you will. And I can certainly see you in, in law. I can see you in policy and those two things, politics. And this reminds me that you, um, when uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, you were a part of, was it sort of a memorial at Gustavus? Mm-hmm. You were part of that as well. And I, I so I, yeah, I wanted to ask if you, I assumed you had an interest in, in law and she's certainly a, a, an amazing uh, role model for so many women, but also men, men as well. Um, yeah, I can't wait. I want to podcast with you again in probably five years or seven years. We'll see and see where you're at. But I look forward to to following you um, the rest of your time at Gustavus and then and then and then beyond. Uh, I'm super proud of you. It's so interesting what you're doing, and uh, I look forward to seeing you back on campus. Uh, I hope soon, maybe maybe by the fall. I think, um, and, and, and when we're all vaccinated. So this has been really interesting and, and fun. There's nothing better for a teacher to listen to a student who's so engaged as you are in learning, um, and 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 doing right. Um, mm-hmm. Those two things, of course, aren't aren't necessarily. Uh, mutually exclusive far from it but anyway it's been a real pleasure emily take good care thanks so much and uh, yeah you're welcome and good luck with the the, all the building bridges stuff look forward to that too yeah thank you so much for having me it's yeah it means a lot to be 
on the podcast because like I said, I'm a big podcast fan, but thank you so much for your kind words. It really means, it means a lot. So thank you. My my pleasure. Um, Take good care. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Learning for Life at Gustavus is produced by J.J. Aiken and Matthew Dobosensky of the Gustavus Office of Marketing. Gustavus graduate Will Clark, class of 20, who also provides technical expertise to the podcast, and me. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Gustavus Adolphus College. <laughs>